Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Welcome back. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser in the chair for Seth Leibson on the Seth Leibson Show. It is great to be back with all of you, and we will be closing out the third hour before we go into the weekend. And as this pandemic Groundhog Day continues and never seems to go away, uh, I thought nothing better than as, you know, I know many of you through my work through counter-Islamism, counter-terrorism, and uh, as we talked earlier about uh, other international issues. Uh, but my day job is as a primary care doc, as an internist at the Jasser Center for Comprehensive Care. I've been in practice here for over 20 years in primary care, uh, and uh, I've gotten to know a lot of uh, great physicians and colleagues uh, in town. Uh, so I thought nothing better than to, to bring in not only one of my favorite senior fellows at the Cato Institute, but one of my favorite docs who was one of the first uh, individuals that I got to know here in the political side of uh, argumentation and debate in uh, our one of our small liberty groups. Uh, this is uh, Dr. Jeff Singer. So welcome, Jeff. Great to see you again, Sudi. Thanks for taking time to uh, come down to the studio, and it's always better to have you here in person. And, uh, you know, our country now is beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel. I think some of it's uh, because of political expediency, not really because people are actually having epiphanies about science. But at the end of the day, I've read a lot of the stuff you've written for Cato. Uh, You had a piece uh, uh, only uh, a few months ago that said, this was last summer, you said, society will never be free of COVID-19. It's time to embrace harm reduction. And, you know, somewhere... Right after the initial discussion of the pandemic back in March 2020 and when our own governor talked about lockdowns and we saw, you know, many of us, until we understood what was going on, we're we're saying, okay, lockdown fine for a few weeks. Let's figure out what's going on. But then six weeks turned to 12 weeks and they started discriminating against some businesses where gyms were closing, restaurants were closing, but other businesses weren't. Costco was okay, and you started to divide society into essential workers and not. And I'm a primary care doc, so they said I was an essential worker, but every other patient I had who had family that needed to be fed, they weren't essential, I guess, because their families don't matter. And all of a sudden we started handing out cash, printing it and hand over fist and the trillions in order to give people money. So all of these things – um, when two two things I wanted to ask you: When did we become such a risk-averse society? I thought my parents fled Syria to come to a country that gave them freedom to challenge the more the normalcy, if you will, and to take risks. That's part of being American. So, number one, when did we lose our risk, become so risk-averse? And second, what's the next step to look back and actually learn something from the last two years? I'm not sure I know the answer to your first question, but <clears throat> about when that happened. Yeah. But it's 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 interesting that uh, there was a, nobody was considering balancing trade-offs and making these decisions. Now, in the opening weeks of this, you know, you and I were in, in our clinical practices at the same time, and I was saying to all my colleagues that I was running into at the hospital, "What's going on here? Why why is this? Uh, why are we shutting down, canceling elective procedures?" And um, everyone was saying, well, I guess it's because we don't want the hospitals to be overwhelmed. And, you know, in hindsight, 
it's, it's easy to criticize. When this first came, we thought that this could be like Ebola. We had right. no idea. And I, I can't criticize uh, in the initial reaction. Right. Like, let's, let's be careful until we size this up. But by the time, oh, the summer of 2020 arrived, I think we already had a fair amount of information. And um, the information is that even before it became – it evolved to the mild form of virus it is now, um, it was primarily striking elderly people, people in nursing homes. I think in the beginning like 40 percent of all deaths were in nursing home patients. Right. Uh, people with certain pre-existing vulnerabilities, and it seemed unlike influenza, it was generally sparing of the very mm-hmm. young. It was not as you know, influenza attacks much more a broader spectrum of ages. So by the summertime, I think it became time to say, okay, we we, we could take a deep breath now and just kind of focus on protecting some people. Uh, but you're you're right; it's like people are not putting things in perspective. So, for example, smallpox. The last case, uh, I think, was reported in 1977. It yeah. took about. I was the last vaccinated smallpox uh, Navy guys in 1988. We were the last group that was quarantined after vaccination for smallpox in 88. Well, I still have my mark. For yeah, mine. me too. But um, <clears throat> it, it took 300 years to eradicate it, right? And that had a 30% death rate. Right. That, I mean, that's huge. Uh, and we still didn't quarantine healthy people. Against smallpox, right? Last I recalled, when smallpox was feared, we we quarantined sick people, but not healthy people. And And yet lockdowns were about quarantining healthy people. Right. And look at respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. I mean, virtually every year there's an RSV season, and there'll be signs saying we're keeping adults away from the pediatric ward in in the hospital temporarily. That 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 takes 1.7% of children who get it and 11% of adults. Now, you, the the, uh, the uh, COVID, not including, you know, all the variations, but overall, just broadly, it looks like it's going to wind up having an infection fatality rate of about 0.2%, which is about, you know, influenza is 0.1, right? Mm-hmm. So that's pretty bad. I mean, we had over two and a half years, we've had 900,000 deaths. That's that's a large amount of people. But even then, it's concentrated among certain people. And, and, yeah, yeah. and we in medicine are trained with every patient we talk to to balance risk and benefits. We say, okay, you can treat your cancer, but the surgery, the radiation, the chemotherapy will have this risk. You could get possibly better survival, et cetera. And in a population perspective, it seemed like we never had that conversation. And science became this black and white thing. And all of a sudden, every doctor who I used to know to be the hemming and hawing folks that would give you 13 options and maybe maybe if you push them, tell you what to do, uh, tell you which top two, now all of a sudden became draconian that we have to do this or we're going to be killing 100,000 people, 500,000 people. And, and now they're still citing almost a million people dead. And God knows what the real number is because so many other diseases were ignored. Right, right. They were not uh, even now. We're just now beginning just now with all of the budget that CDC has. We're just now beginning to start differentiating uh, the governor of New York told us a few weeks ago that 43% of people in the hospital with COVID were with COVID, but they were there for something else. Well, why haven't we been collecting this data nationwide since this began? The CDC can do that. So, it, true, it did magnify it, which, of course, got everybody frightened. Um, but you, you're right. I, I, I've noticed a big change. Uh, most of us private practicing clinicians as, as kind of old timers, um, we – 
for we every day, day in and day out, we're helping patients navigate through trade-offs, right? I'm a surgeon, and when I'm discussing an operation with a patient, they're, you know, not only am I only going over the risks and benefits of the operation, but they're asking me questions like, uh, you know, I can't afford to miss work. How important yeah, is it that I get exactly. this operation now, or is this something that I can wait? All those kind of things. So our antennas are always up about trade-offs. We're very yeah. sensitive to that. But the administrative doctors, uh, they're just looking at numbers. They're not looking at – they're not thinking of the human side and the trade-offs. They're just thinking about how do I get the numbers of COVID cases down. And then so many of us doctors nowadays are employed by hospitals who are – basically taking orders from the CDC. And so I'd run into employed physicians at the hospital, and they would just basically repeat whatever the CDC said. And somehow the entire metric became flatten the curve. And that curve had to do with full beds in hospital, and that somehow that's what we determined was the was the uh, uh, impenetrable firewall, that if we ever got to maximum capacity in RCUs, that was the disaster. It is a disaster, but on the other hand, all the other disease trading we did, I can't tell you in my own practice, the number of patients that had bowel obstructions that stayed home, that had MIs that uh, dealt with the chest pain. And now we're starting to see a sonic boom effect a year later in which a lot of the diseases now, this is why there's such a shortage of services and staff, et cetera, because on the one hand, um, mammography and screening that wasn't being done. We're finding masses that uh, a lot more than we thought. So this is all sort of the disease trading that was done last year on behalf of everyone where they couldn't make that decision. They couldn't say, you know what? I would rather take my chances with COVID since I'm a 40-year-old person that I'll get my vaccine rather than stay home and, and not get the care that I need. And, oh, yeah. and, and it sort of shifted the priorities mandated through government rather than through choice. Even, even when the, the moratorium on elective procedures was lifted, and thank goodness when Governor Ducey, he made a mistake doing that, of course. But the next, when, when the pandemic really hit Arizona in the summer of 2020, he didn't repeat that mistake. He learned from that mistake and let us work it out as yeah. hospitals and medical staff. But I was seeing people showing up with the most advanced cases of acute right. abdomens because they were letting it go at home. And they provided liability coverage for that, which they probably I, – I would agree they had to because the government was preventing them from uh, providing appropriate care. So the standard of care changed, yeah. which thus shifted the cost. And I don't think – you know, I think what we're going to have to do is figure out a way to look retrospectively at that so that we don't make these same horrific mistakes again. We'll be right back. We're going to be t- – I'm talking with Dr. Jeffrey Singer, a senior fellow of the Cato Institute and also a longtime friend of mine here in the Valley and a general surgeon in town since the early 80s. And we'll be right back on The Seth Liebson Show. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser in the chair for... Seth Leibson on the Seth Leibson Show. And I am joined by another doctor and a good friend, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Singer, a general surgeon uh, in town here in the Maricopa County for the last uh, many years, since the early 80s. Yeah, early 80s. And uh, I've uh, gotten to know Jeff uh, actually right when I got into town and joined my father's practice, um, joined a uh, Liberty Discussion Group with him, and uh, since then I've uh, continued to follow his work. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and we're having a conversation about what we can learn from the last two years and where are we going from here on the pandemic, on medicine, on politics, 
And uh, in the last segment, we were talking about how much this has sort of destroyed or, or changed a lot of the foundations of science and medicine and politicized a lot of the aspects of the practice. And I said, you know, I can't help but but remember that this is, you know, my work against political Islam, the theocrats, the imams in town and globally say, oh, we're not supposed to ask these questions. Uh, I don't have a degree in, in theology, so who am I to question Sharia and question these things? And I'm told this on a theological realm, and I tell the American public that this is because Islam hasn't gone through a reformation. It's still pre-enlightenment. Well, now we see in medicine... Joe Rogan can't ask questions. He's somehow uh, being canceled, and so many others are being canceled. And you have a piece coming out in Reason soon about this. Yeah, next month, uh, it's weirdly, it's the May issue, even though it comes out in March Mm -hmm. uh, of Reason magazine. I have a feature article that goes into this whole thing. By the way, this is not limited to medical science. It's it's, it's the sciences in general, but what I know most is medical science. Uh, It's sort of like back in medieval times, the only people who were able to read. The only literate people were the people in the church. And and then the Gutenberg printing press changed everything. And that's what led to the Reformation, where people were able to read on their own and, and come to their own conclusions. Well, the internet is sort of like the Gutenberg printing press. So what's happened in recent years is the scientific establishment, the elite in the, you know, in the academy, no longer have a monopoly on, on uh, specialized information. Instead, anybody can go on the Internet and, and get access to reading the same papers and same studies and see the same numbers, including the CDC's you know, morbidity and mortality numbers, as, as anybody else. And so they start questioning the priesthood of science, and the scientific priesthood recoils and gets defensive by saying, what do you know? Now, sometimes, you know, it's, there's no question. Experts are important. Uh, oh, yeah. You and I are experts. Uh, and uh, a person who doesn't have a background may not have... Be dangerous. Yeah, yeah, may not know right. a certain... May not realize that some of the data being presented in this study is cherry-picked because they're aware of other studies. So I'm not saying that everyone should be treated equally, but... You need to be tolerant because uh, there are an awful lot of smart people who may not have uh, – may not be an epidemiologist, but, but they may have a Ph.D. in, you know, in economics and work with data crunching and statistics all the time. And when they see the, the, the data presented by the epidemiologists and they say, wait a minute, I'm looking at this and I don't think that your methodology is right here. You know, that's a person who could say that. So uh, there's a tendency right now, number one, the scientific elite – doesn't like to be challenged, and they, they dismiss out of hand anybody who questions them as spreading misinformation. On top of that, within the scientific establishment, um, there's a tendency for people to, to get punished if they challenge the elite. And, you know, something a, a large part of that probably has to do with who controls the grant money, too. Right. Think about it. I right. mean, if you want to publish a paper that challenges what the narrative that the uh, establishment, which is usually politicized, you know, the people in the NIH and, and other government agencies that control grant money, you don't want to go against those guys. You may not get a grant for your study. So we've you seen large, to quiet down. We've seen large medical institutions come out with critical race theory, basically templated documents that are endorsed by leading physicians and professors that basically is lifted from the Black Lives Matter critical race theory textbooks, which, you know, you can't even question 
And actually, editors of medical journals have been fired if they even question that somehow the premise that every doctor somehow is racist and that uh, we treat our patients differently. And if you even question that fact, you're you're canceled, you're you're fired, and you're removed from your position because you, the premise has to be one that we're all racist first. So my point is is that what happened to inquiry, what happened to critical thinking, uh, it it has and and to me, I, I think about the Islamic reform stuff and. On the one hand, the countries my parents came from, Syria, et cetera, haven't gone through an era where critical thinking is is encouraged. While in America, the the culture is one of question your parents, question society, question be, authority. be question authority, be be a critical thinker. And yet we flipped on a dime and a pandemic and and now have thrown this and, and social media seems to be bullying people into submission rather than into critical thinking, which is what it's supposed to do. And don't forget, social media also is under pressure, political pressure, because there are politicians on both sides of the aisle that have a bone to pick with social media for, the, for one reason or another. You know, each side has their gripes and the social media uh, operators are fearful of getting regulated and co-opted by the politicians. So instead, they try to please them. Hoping that they'll defuse a but lot. But the of Zuckerbergs things. of the world are begging for being co-opted because that way they can control the industry, which is what we saw in the medical industry with Medicare in the late '60s and others. Is that my father's generation sold themselves to the government so that they could make a ton of money initially, but now that has basically changed medicine in America to no longer being free market. So we're seeing this in social media too, I think. Well, yeah, the big ones, of yeah. course. Just, we see that in all industries, don't we? The big companies want. They're okay with regulation. They could afford it and they could adopt to it and it could prevent. It snuffs out the competition. Yeah, prevent new entrance. Right. right. So it's like a regulatory capture of the regulatory system. Certificate of needs in hospitals yeah. and all these things that we see that are antitrust uh, mechanisms of, uh, of keeping out competition. What do you think, uh, you know, did you see this uh, uh, um, declaration that was signed by a number of physicians and others, uh, uh, the, the, yeah, the Great Barrington Declaration? And still, we saw, uh, I think it was a video that you sent me, a 20-minute, I don't know if it was from Cato or who it was from, but basically a 20-minute dismantling of how the, the regular media dismantled that declaration and said, oh, this is just a bunch of fringe people, et cetera, when in fact... It included heads of departments from Stanford to 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 Oxford to all over the world that basically said not only do lockdowns not work, it actually harms society. The the virus transmitted just as fast, and and there's no that we need to study these things more. Yeah, actually, it was uh, it wasn't from Cato, it was, it was but it was a, a montage video. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but I, I write about this in the reason piece that's coming out. So the Great Barrington Declaration was signed in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. It was hosted by the American uh, Institute for Economic Research, which is lo- located there. They're a free market thing. Right. And um, the, the, the authors were uh, Jay Bhattacharya, who's a professor of medicine at Stanford University. He has an MD, but he also has a PhD, believe it or not, in economics. Uh, and then uh, uh, Sunetra Gupta, who's an epidemiologist from Oxford, and Martin Koldorf, who's professor MD, professor of epidemiology from Harvard. And they simply said – that we need to balance the trade-offs and we, we need to focus our protection on the most vulnerable people and uh, allow the least vulnerable people to have as normal a life as possible, particularly the young and the children who have almost no risk and their lives have really been damaged by this. And for that, they were dismissed as fringe doctors because, you know, they teach at fringe universities like Harvard and Oxford and, and Stanford. 
And now that's what that's what happened in October 2020 when they came out with that. But here we are in February 2022, and everybody's thinking, you know, they were right. Exactly. Even the people who who dismissed them are now they're not admitting they were wrong, but they're implementing their plans. We're talking to Jeff Singer, friend of mine, colleague. We'll be right back on the Seth Leibson show. This is Udi Jasser in the chair, bringing you to the weekend on the Seth Leapson Show. And I'm honored to be joined by my good friend Jeff Singer, a general surgeon in town since uh, the early 80s. And he is now a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and has been writing quite a bit uh, for Cato on the issue of COVID, the pandemics, and what we can learn. Before the break, we were talking about the Great Barrington Declaration and how these brilliant physicians who had the crime of simply asking appropriate questions that we were taught in medical school to ask. We were taught in a Socratic method not to simply accept dogma, but to to posit research, to question previous uh, dogma and begin to present new experiments. And yet that changed in the Great Barrington response. Yeah, in fact, the couple, I mentioned this in my article coming yeah. out of reason. Uh, look at his, historically. This is not new. For example, when, when uh, Edward Jenner came out with the with the uh, smallpox vaccine, mm-hmm. which he got from cow, taking cowpox. That's where the word vaccination comes from. Va- vaca means cow in Latin. Right. So he was derided for doing that. And many of the uh, elites said that they, you might actually develop cow-like features if you get the right. cowpox vaccine. Eventually, of course, we know that, right. that he was right. Or uh, Semmelweis uh, uh, in, in the 1840s who said that if you wash your hands between examining women in labor, then you'll decrease the risk of childbed fever and, and, and death. So th- this, is, this is not new, but, but in modern times, it's, it's unusual because for the last, oh, 60, 70 years, we've been challenging all these dogmas. In, in surgery, I was taught in medical school and in my residency that you take a five centimeter margin of normal tissue when you remove a melanoma because it tends to, to spread wide. And but if it's on the face, you can't do that. So just take as as much as you can and get it off. And you know, I was always wondering. Well, wait a minute. Has anybody done a study to see if the people who had it taken off the face do worse than the people who had these five centimeter margins that require skin grafts? And finally, in the 1970s, somebody did, and they found out you don't need to do a five centimeter margin of right. skin graft. So people challenge dogma. Uh, in in March of 2020, John Ioannidis, prof- yeah. he's a PhD, MD, PhD, professor of Epidemiology and biostatistics Stanford. at Stanford. He was one of the one of the icons of the evidence based medicine yeah. movement. He he published research in the early part of the century showing fifty percent of all studies in the medical literature are subsequently found out to be wrong. So he, everybody reveres this guy. So he comes out with an op ed in Stat News, a, a, yeah. a medical newspaper, in March saying, "Hey guys, slow down before we start locking down the country." Yeah. You know, that could have consequences for people. It could have a lot of long-term, you know, it could be devastating trade-offs. We don't know enough yet. Why don't we slow down and collect some data? Suddenly, overnight, he went from being one of the most revered. He was demonized like oh, he yeah. was uh, uh, an MMA fighter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like he, Joe Rogan. By the way, I don't know his politics. I don't think anybody I know. Politics. He's like a pure scientist. He is. But he was destroyed for that. Unbelievable. And, and, and so, yeah, it's, it, now, of course... People are starting 
to come around and see it. But Omicron, you got to admit, Omicron changed a lot because the natural tendency of viruses, as you know, is for them to evolve to become more contagious but less deadly. Right. Because they, they don't, if they kill off their host, they cease to exist. So right. that's just the natural selection process. So when Omicron appeared, I thought to myself back in December, this, this could be a good thing. This is so contagious. It's going to crowd out the other variants. But people are going to. And when the Trump part, administration was talking about a natural immunity and Scott uh, um, Atlas yeah. used the term natural immunity, they kept repeating it on CNN and elsewhere because of political reasons, as if he was citing some type of uh, uh, witchcraft. Wasn't that the first but, week of medical school? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that if you mention natural immunity, that somehow you're sacrificing the population, which is actually the way most viruses make their way through society. And vaccination is not intended to be 100 percent. It's a certain threshold. But then Fauci changed the percent from 70 to 75 to 80 and it became 90. Not taking into account people who are naturally immune. Right. And if there's no such thing, he kept saying, well, we don't know if there's natural immunity. I'm thinking to myself, well, if if there's no natural immunity, then what are you doing developing vaccines? Because that's how they work. And now our militaries are kicking out SEALs and others that we spent millions of dollars training, even if they're naturally immune, because they won't get the vaccine. I mean, it is there's 30,000 active duty that were just discharged a few weeks ago because they wouldn't do the vaccine. And he finally admitted about two weeks ago that natural immunity is better than and more broad based than vaccine induced immunity, which we we kind of learned that when we were back in medical school. Right. Exactly. It's just it's, it's just amazing that somehow the bigger picture has been ignored. When we come back, I want to talk about vaccines. And what what did we learn about? Are we learning about vaccines? The new mRNA vaccine? Should kids be vaccinated? And maybe we'll also talk about masks that still hasn't gone away. California's talking about changing their mask laws, like you said, right after the Super Bowl on Monday. Uh, so uh, uh, this is Zudi Jasser sitting in for Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. This is Zudi Jasser, Dr. Zudi Jasser. Uh, I have a practice in internal medicine, primary care, the Jasser Center for Comprehensive Care. Been in town for 20 years uh, after getting my training in the Navy. And uh, I'm now joined by my good friend who I met soon after coming to town, Jeff Singer, general surgeon in town since the, uh, the early 80s. He is now a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. We're talking about science, medicine, what we've learned, what are the appropriate questions to be asked and how much freedom should we have to ask them. And, you know, I think one of the points that has happened is what should be, you know, I chair a bioethics program, and one of the things in ethics is that at the end of the day, we we lift up patient autonomy to the point that patients can make wrong decisions. They can sit down and have a heart attack, and they're having a heart attack in front of me, but yet refuse to go to the ER, refuse to get an angiogram, they, they can make bad decisions because we as a culture honor freedom above patients, let's say, prolonging their life or intervening, assaulting them with care, if you will. So in a pandemic, all of a sudden, a lot of these core principles seem to have gone away in which the burden of proof in which the government or politicians or businesses should have to make decisions for you became less they mandated masks. They're now mandating vaccines on a new type of vaccine, mRNA. I'm not anti-vax. I, I'm vaccinated. I've not gotten a booster. I don't think I need one, but I'm vaccinated. I got my two shots. So at the end of the day, 
what changed? How do we determine what the burden of proof should be to take somebody else's freedom? Well, I think it's important first to, to say, you know, now philosophically, you could, there are arguments that could be made for taking some people's freedom away in an emergency, right. a public health emergency. Because if you have some highly contagious and highly deadly disease that you could be spreading to others, yeah. then when you're quarantined, your freedom is being taken away if you're being kept away from those people. So you, you could make the argument for and, – and libertarians have – there are libertarians who have made a philosophic argument for – uh, ma- mandating everybody gets everybody gets vaccinated or everybody wears a mask. On the other hand, th- th- there's a high threshold for that. You have to right. be able to prove that this is this is seriously. So that's what I think the conversation, Jeff, should be in the next five years: is what is the threshold of the burden of proof for my society, Arizona, my state, to make decisions that limit my freedom? And in the beginning, what's the science what, threshold? I agree. And and in the beginning, when this just began, for all we knew, it could have been one of those terrible things like Ebola right. or smallpox. So that's why, I, you know, I, I'll cut people a lot of slack in the decisions that were made in the very beginning. But, but we're not we learning learning more. We should have said, are okay, we are we learning California? I mean, the, the states are still mandating masks. Many some of them. places. Yeah. To and this day. And the evidence is the states that were looser than this, uh, haven't really at the end of the day. As far as the disease is concerned, done any worse than the states that were restrictive, but they've done a lot better in quality of life matters, in economics, and in, in, in psychosocial health. They've done a lot better because they were less restrictive. And then people ask me, why, is, why do things change in medicine year to year? One decade, we're telling women that hormones postmenopausally are harmful. The next decade, we're saying that it's beneficial. The next decade, we're saying this, this initiative health study is bad. So it's same thing. You review Florida's data on pandemic CNN talks about it. They think it's the worst state on the planet. Arizona also has bad data, and it's all because we didn't do lockdowns appropriately. Actually, Another data review, the recent data that you know they say was not reviewed correctly, it looks like actually we, we had the least problems, South Dakota least problems. Or at least Finland, not- Denmark, countries that were less locked down or not locked down at all actually seem to have the lowest death rates. Well, I don't know about the lowest, but they were certainly – Pretty low. They, didn't, they were not – they were not any worse off than anybody else. Let's exactly. just say that, because you could argue That's a better, about the data. Better way to but say they it. were not. They were not worse off for it, and, and they were better off in a lot of other other ways. And again, you got to consider trade-offs. So, for example, when we're talking about children. Okay, the risks to, to I'm talking about children under the age of 18. There've been, I think, 900 deaths in children defined as under the age of 18. So, a, a 17 or 18 year old is a child. Okay, since this began, there've been 900 deaths, and almost all of them have been in in children with uh, a reason to have it, like leukemia or some immunocompromised Cystic fibrosis. Yeah, exactly. Of, or, or morbid yeah. obesity or juvenile yeah. diabetes. So the, the risks to children is almost zero. And in fact, the CDC told us, and they said they may be being conservative, but they did a random sampling, and 43% of school-aged children who had never, never had been symptomatic tested positive for the COVID antibodies, which means... That for all we know, almost every kid who's got it from home had it. Yeah, they got it from home when they weren't even they were online. They didn't get it in school. They got it from home um, from the adults, but they didn't manifest any illness. So you could make and I I could see and I I got I got uh, dinged by media matters for saying that I could understand parents having questions about do I need to get my six year old vaccinated because I myself am conflicted on it because the risks uh, of the child getting 
seriously ill from COVID are almost none. Exactly. And, it's almost, it's and, zero. Right. And when they did the trials involve like 2,500 kids, that's a small trial. And you, there, we are hearing reported cases, particularly in males, young males, of myocarditis as a, as a alert, sort of a, 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 you know, a, an immune-mediated immune side effect of the vaccination. So do you want to risk your little boy getting myocarditis? And the ethics is what? And the ethics is what? That we mass vaccinate them because the teachers unions or the the other adults don't. I mean, when in medicine do we ever force a treatment on patient A, not because it benefits patient A, but because patient B thinks it would be beneficial to them if patient A got that treatment? Plus, patient B, the teacher, got vaccinated. Exactly. And if they don't get vaccinated, then... Then they have no vaccinated and there's plastic shields in front of the patients of the front of the uh, children's desks. And now we're seeing significant disorders from kids right. with face with masks that weren't able at three, four years old, six years old to see lips moving and speech impediments that they usually only saw in kids with developmental disorders. Now they're seeing across the population and we're also kids. seeing a lot of psychological disorder. I mean, suicide I'm rates are up. Drug use. I have young grandchildren and. Some kids now, if you have a, uh, uh, you know, a five-year-old kid, but two, you know, forty percent of that child's life has been spent in fear of dying from this dangerous virus and wearing a mask when you're around people because you can get sick. This is what you know they're interpreting. You wonder what the long-term consequences are going to be of this. Is this going to be, are these going to be people who have all sorts of phobias or? develop obsessive compulsive disorder and are just afraid of things. We, I mean, we don't know. But to take a young child that's very impressionable and, uh, and doesn't necessarily understand it on a level that adults do and, and have them constantly afraid of interacting with other people and socially distancing and, and you know, mask wearing. Uh, I'm not even talking about the speech impediments and the cognitive disability. I'm right. talking about the psychological disabilities. That's so important because yet you see highlighted repeatedly on social media uh, uh, little snippets from Rogan's programs where he's talking to uh, Dr. Malone or another that had the, the temerity to talk about terms like mass psychosis and other things. And these are realities in that our culture has shifted to one that's typically a risk-taking culture to now risk-averse, fear-based culture because of a obsession on a virus. But also they don't know how to assess risk. So, for example, uh, you know, they'll drive in a car – to work, which for many of them is more risky than, yeah. not, than not wearing a mask in a gym. Right. But That's they don't know just, that. They don't know the relative risks. Exactly. And, and uh, you know, sometimes there's a price for freedom, a price for democracy, and that we should be given the space to maybe sometimes uh, the, the equations are not being formulated correctly. When we come back in our last segment, we'll round out a few Wise thoughts from our friend, Dr. Jeff Singer. This is Zudi Jasser filling in for Seth Liebson. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser in the chair for Seth Liebson, finishing out, getting you to the weekend. You know, as uh, I've been talking here with my colleague, uh, Dr. Jeff Singer, a general surgeon in town and also senior fellow at the Cato Institute, I have to say as we finish here, Jeff, um, I think the most important question when you get care from your doctor and from the system is not only that your doctor be well-trained, but do you trust your doctor? And what do you mean by trust? When you ask him or her a question, do they actually present you the most relevant science 
and present you information that give you a true mechanism of having informed consent, meaning that you've been informed appropriately and that you consent to it, that they're not pushing you. The old 60s argument of Marcus Welby sort of paternally telling you what you should do. We used to give patients medicines on the bottles that just said tablet A, didn't tell them what it was. Now we've shifted more towards an autonomy-based patient-centered system in which we are simply consultants. That trust has been eroded severely because our profession, and especially in the last two years, has become so politicized as tools of government rather than tools for our patients. Where do you think we're headed? And let people know where they can find you. Okay, you can find me uh, at cato.org. That's Cato Institute's website. And when you go on the website, on the top, there's a banner uh, that will say experts. If you click on that, the experts are listed in alphabetical order. You'll find me. If you click on that, It'll take you to everything I've ever written on anything mm-hmm. and also my media appearances. Um, you know, it's interesting uh, that you say that. So I've had some people who are, are younger and have young children, and they've asked me, should I get my child vaccinated? And I didn't tell them yes or no. I told them sort of like we talked about the last segment. I said, well, here's the pros. Here's the cons. Um, one of the arguments I've heard for that. Is, is and Paul Offit, who's uh, yeah. chief of pediatrics at Philadelphia Children's Hospital. He's on the FDA vaccine advisory panel. He's definitely pro-vax. He says that the best argument for getting a child vaccinated is because you, you appear to have lasting memory immunity with these vaccines, that you get your kid vaccinated with all the other vaccinations your kid gets, and then you, you don't have, the kid doesn't have to worry the rest of, of his or her life because they're going to be okay for, when it comes to COVID. That's the best argument he can come up with. But on the other hand, what I basically do, I mention that, and I mention the pros and the cons and the statistics, and I don't give them an answer. I say, so now that I've laid this out for you, you kind of decide what's the best for your kid, and that's the way we should be. That's what you should do in medicine all the time anyway. And, and, and I always end that conversation with my patients because we shifted so much. I know some of the house staff often, the residents and stuff, they, they leave patients with a sort of country buffet approach. They say, oh, you make a choice. Often families and patients want to be told, well, what would you do, doc? And I tell them, I say, this is what I would do. I got a vaccine. I, got a, I did the procedure. This is how I treat my cancer, God forbid. But this is what I would do. So I think that's the ultimate the way to trust your doc is that they would tell you what they would do, but they wouldn't impose it or coerce it on you. Exactly. exactly. But they do like they do value knowing what you would do because exactly. they, they, they trust you. But that's a relationship based in equality, not one based in which we let the government force or coerce things. Mandates might sound good, but we see the vaccination rates actually are probably lower among society because we tried to force it upon them. And, you know, the administrations basically initially said we're going to get them and entice them and give them gift cards. And then it led to coercion and force. So the whole time it was not true. This is Zudi Jasser. Thanks for being with me, Jeff. God bless you for all that you do. Seth will be back on Monday. Thanks for being with me. Take care.